Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Andy Wakefield, who is on his tour for the new uh, incredible documentary he produced, 1986, The Act. He's currently in Wichita, Kansas, and getting ready to engage in a very large uh, gathering of over a thousand people in support of the film. So uh, along with him and Dale Bigtree and Robbie RFK Jr. will be there. So it's, it's, it's going to be great. But we're going to go into the details of this film, which is uh, the best documentary I've ever seen put together on this topic. Uh, it is really incredible, you, and congratulations to you, Andy. Uh, but before we go into the film, I, I want to go in a little bit about you, because uh, just about everyone watching this should know who you are, but for the rare people who don't, maybe you can expand on that, because you you're certainly took the brunt of a, quite a bit of controversy, and uh, I don't know that anyone has been more, and I think the term is appropriate, uh, crucified than you uh, or in this in this movement. I mean, they took away your medical license. You've been vilified uh, from to the top to the bottom. And, and, it, and it's just, it's just sadly tragic what they've done to you. But why don't you t briefly summarize that story and then we can go into the details of the film. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, Joe. You're looking wonderful uh, as ever. I, um, I trained as a uh, classical physician, uh, classical medicine. I graduated in 1981 from the Royal Free Hospital in London. I trained as a surgeon and went into gastroenterology. My principal interests were inflammatory bowel disease, and I ended up running a large research team, about 19 of us at the Royal Free Hospital in London, which is part of the University of London. And I became interested in the possible viral origins of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And that led me to looking at measles virus. And then after publishing a paper in The Lancet in 1995, in the middle of 95, I got a call from my mother who said her child was developing normally, then had his MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and then regressed into autism very, very quickly after a period of, of, of what turned out to be an and cephalitis. And he also had terrible bowel symptoms, gastrointestinal problems, failure to thrive, pain, uh, bloating, diarrhea. And that was the reason she was getting in touch with me. And she was convinced that there was a link between the bowel and the brain. Well, these children, and she said, there's an epidemic of this particular problem. And so we took that very seriously. We investigated her child. She was absolutely right. We investigated a whole lot of children uh, and they indeed had an inflammatory bowel disease. And that was fascinating. The medical profession had dismissed it and said, no, that's just part of autism. In fact, it wasn't. It was a genuine pathology. But more importantly, when we corrected or um, ameliorated that pathology with diet or anti-inflammatories, then not only did the gastrointestinal problems improve, but the behavior 
and the autistic symptoms improved as well. And that was fascinating, Joe. That was like a sort of Lorenzo's oil. So being academics, we said that didn't happen. So we did it 180 times and it happened virtually every single time. And so the parents were absolutely right. We had to take, therefore, the uh, proposed link between the MMR vaccine and the regression very, very seriously. And that, of course, was anathema to public health, to the Royal College of Pediatricians, to the CDC, to just about the entire world of medicine. Um, and certainly, of course, to the pharmaceutical industry responsible for making these vaccines. And so, uh, but that was neither here nor there. We had an obligation to the children and fulfilling that obligation led to an attenuation of my career prospects. But that's neither here nor there. I, you know, it was, we had a job to do and we did the job. I now, after they pro prevented me doing the job that I set out to do, I decided to become a filmmaker because over the years, because of the stance I'd taken, a lot of people had come to me from industry or from government with stories of terrible deeds, terrible acts on the part of those people that were not in the interests of the children that they were meant to be caring for. And they would say to me, we did something very bad. I can't live with it. Here are the documents that prove it. And so I had these extraordinary stories and I thought now is the time to start telling those stories in film. And that is where I find myself now. So I look on myself now, Joe's really continuing that process of education, which I started way back teaching individuals and medical students, and now through film, helping to educate, at least in part, many, many more people about what's really happened. And 1986, the act, the new movie, is really part of that process, a very important part of that process. Okay. I want to delve a little bit more into your history just before we go into the <clears throat> film, and uh, that they, they disparaged you enormously and actually invested enormous amounts of resources to spin up a counter narrative and invested in and actually had uh, studies published to disprove your hypothesis. And I found it particularly odd that it doesn't rationally make sense that you could be vilified for, 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 for supporting some hidden agenda you had no financial gain involved in this at all. Now, there are many scams out there. I mean, that's part of the nature of being human, and people do this routinely. But usually there's some financial motivation, some ulterior component to that. You had none of that. You were just seeking to communicate the truth. But for that, they, they essentially made you an example and took away your license and essentially caused you to leave your, your home country. And then you migrated to the United States. Now, uh, I'm curious, I think the you went to Texas initially for a while, and you now you're down in Florida, which I think is the best state in the country, so that was a good move, but uh, I think, you, did you get to Florida after you met Al McPherson? I did. Okay, so I thought, yeah, because she lives down in Miami, and uh, I think I was at the event where you guys met, was at the ACIM meeting in November of uh, two years ago, but uh, so why don't you just comment on that, and then we'll go into the, into the video. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, Joe. Yes, you're absolutely right. They accuse me of all kinds of things, of scientific fraud, of abuse of children. One qualification in, in respect of, of financial conflicts of interest 
um, it was alleged that the Lancet paper was paid for by lawyers. It wasn't at all. And this is one of the great lies that has been construed around this, that I was actually motivated to bring down the drug companies, the uh, vaccine manufacturers, uh, what, by working as an expert on behalf of these children. Now, that started some six months after I'd encountered these children and initiated the program of investigation into their illness. And yes, I acted as an expert on behalf of these children in litigation against the pharmaceutical companies in the UK for some nine years. And that really was my undoing. They couldn't tolerate that, that someone would go against the system and act on behalf of the children. There was no criticism of those many experts acting on behalf of the pharmaceutical companies who were making a fortune. And I should say that all I made as an expert went into an initiative to develop a new center at the Royal Free to investigate the disease in these children and improve their well-being. I made nothing out of it at all. Indeed, I lost a great deal. But that's, again, neither here nor there. I did that willingly. It was a conscious decision. And I did it in the interests of pursuing the science because there was, it was absolutely sure, certain, that we were never going to get funding from any other source to pursue a possible link between a vaccine and a serious adverse outcome in many, many children. That wasn't going to happen. So if we were going to succeed in this scientific initiative, then we had to take it on ourselves and fund it ourselves. And that was the decision that I took. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for having the courage and the uh, the uh, personal integrity to pursue that. And it just still boggles my mind that anyone who was objective and looked at the facts couldn't come to any other conclusion that you, you there was no ill intent here. I mean, you had no motivation to pursue that. There was no financial incentive. So, and that's typically, as I said, the, the, the single largest motivator in, in areas like this. But so anyway, uh, it. it kind of leads into the pronoic vision or view of life, which I tend to take. And uh, because you obviously had some really nasty things happen to you that really could have turned most people's lives upside down and it sure did yours for a while. But, but we all get these challenges. Every single one of us, everyone watching this has life challenges. And if you could take that and turn it around for good and realize that there's, even though it looks terrible and tragic at the time, there's some good purpose and outcome that's going to result from that that tragedy so and you you've done that you've actually produced this new movie 1986 the act which uh is incredible i mean it really is i mean your previous movies i know vaxxed it was was there a vax two to it, I, I was in vax two it wasn't my movie i didn't okay okay all right so so vaxxed was your movie though right and dell's uh, I was I directed it and wrote it and Dell co-wrote it and produced it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, but that was uh, maybe you can briefly discuss that. But was were there any other movies other than Vax that you? There was a movie before that that was called Who Killed Alex Spordalakis. It was a tragic story of a child, a single child, and it. The one thing about that movie which convinced me of the power of the film, Joe, was that it was the story ostensibly of a murder-suicide where the mother had killed her own child. And we had been filming the entire evolution of this process clearly with not, without knowing how it was going to end. And when we made the movie about what really happened, what about the abject failure of the medical system to help this child, in fact, to destroy him with 28 psychotropic medications and chain him to a bed, 
that when the state prosecutor in Illinois saw the film, he called her lawyer and said, we cannot prosecute this film, this, this, this case in the same way. Having seen this film, she will be released from prison next week. And that mm. was the first time in American history that a film had ever commuted what was in effect a life sentence. It was extraordinary. And that made me realize that film is something that convey to a, can convey to a lot of people an extraordinary set of truths that can change their thinking about a certain topic. Yeah, well, congratulations. That's certainly a great victory. And then you, you, know, you took it to the next level with facts and uh, disclosed this uh, almost a conspiracy within the CDC to withhold information, uh, which was complex. And, and I think, in my view, it was, it was a useful film, but no, it doesn't come anywhere close as to uh, 1986, the act, which which provides, I mean, you've done such an incredible service to collate this information on of the history, which really hasn't been done because many people now, I mean, that was a long time ago. That was like 36 years ago when this happened or 34 years ago. Uh, and, you know, many people today were not alive at that time, let alone old enough to understand what was going on. I mean, you and I were both in medical practice at the time, but it was, it was a, an incredible uh, governmental process that ra radically changed things forever. So why don't you just not let you take it from here. You can discuss, you know, what motivated you to put this together. Uh, and you know, the process that you did, it must've taken a few years because the, 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 the documentation you have on that is just phenomenal. It is, it is just a great, a great, uh, historical, uh, description of what happened. Well, thank you, Joe. Yes, here we have a complex story of legislation, complex legislation, litigation, and medical science. You've got this extraordinary challenge as a filmmaker to deliver that to the public, many of whom know nothing about this in a way that they will understand. That was a real challenge. And it took, I started, sort of, I started in four years ago trying to conceptualize this. And way into the movie, I was still stuck for a narrative mechanism, a way of engaging the public, because it could have put even the most ardent fan to sleep in 10 minutes, mm -hmm. trying to tell that story. And how did, therefore, how to do it? And I was at a pop-up fundraiser in Los Angeles, and there, were a, there was a celebrity couple there, and they said, after I'd spoken, we really have to get behind this film and do everything we can for it. And I, I um, suddenly thought, in that moment, oh my gosh, I now know what you can do and how to narrate this film. I will put it in your hands. You will be a husband and wife as you are and you're expecting your first baby late in life and therefore it is very, very important, very precious to you and you go on a journey. Something sparks a concern in the mother, some ancient wisdom, some intuition that leads her on a journey and she's taking her husband with her. And initially it's the same debate that so many families around the kitchen table every night are having in every country of the world right now. And that is, what do we do about vaccination? There's so much controversy. There's this for and that against, and my friend says this and my sister says that. Put the film, the narration, the narrative in the hands of the parents. Now, we, the audience, are suddenly engaged because this couple are us. 
They have been where we have been. They are asking the questions that we have asked. And suddenly we care. We care because their journey is our journey. Their outcome is our outcome. So we're sitting forward in our seats wanting to know more. And it becomes so much more engaging. And that was a real challenge. Never been done before, combining fictional narrative, even though this couple were based upon the sort of constellation of the thousands of parents I've interviewed over the years, with documentary footage. It could have ended up like an ice cream sundae. And yet I think it worked. And, and from what you say, Joe, at least it worked for you. So thank you very much for that. And suddenly it becomes a real story that we care about. So in a filmic sense, that was the challenge which we seem to have dealt with in some way. We didn't get the original celebrity couple. I could never get back in touch with them, such oh, as Hollywood. Okay. But, uh, that was a question I had, yeah. All right. <laughs> but we did get yeah, uh, some very fine actors to help us with it. Um, and the story is really, there are two elements to it, Joe. And one is it's a story of what happens when you take an industry and products out and away from the constraints of the free market. And you will understand as well as anyone that the free market in this country operates to promote the success of good products. And where a product is bad or unsafe, it will sink to the bottom and either the companies improve or they perish. And when you take a product out of that free market, away from those constraints, such that there is no there is no incentive for safety where there is a mandated market and no liability, then you have a catastrophe. For the industry, you have a perfect business model. All they can do is make a massive profit. They don't have to do the safety studies properly. They don't have any liability. Indeed, doing safety studies properly is disincentivized. Why? Because you don't want to put money into identifying a serious adverse event that might affect your bottom line. So you're not going to do those safety studies. And this is the situation we face now in this country, but it's worse than that, Joe. What the act, the movie shows is how when this act was passed, the regulatory agencies, the CDC, FDA, NIH, did not want it. They didn't want it because every time a child was compensated, it meant vaccines can do this. They can harm, they can kill, and we don't want the public to know that. So how are we going to prevent that? And so they conspired with the industry to demolish, to sabotage everything that, these, uh, that Congress had put in place to ensure proper regulation, proper safety studies be done, proper ascertainment of severe adverse events, of adverse events in general, and making vaccines safer. There was none of that. And so right now, we find ourselves in this extraordinary situation where in the face of a new pandemic, COVID-19, we have the threat of global vaccine mandates for everybody, without exception, and no safety studies of any merit whatsoever. In fact, the few safety studies that are being done already turning up serious neurological adverse events and absolutely no chance for compensation for anyone 
damaged by those vaccines in what is now the PrEP Act, which has superseded or carried on from the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act and is even worse. No liability for anyone in that chain of supply of these new untested, dangerous Frankenstein vaccines, which are already proving to be troublesome. Yes, indeed. And I was particularly fond of the documentary because it highlighted one of my heroes and yours too, I'm sure, is Barbara Lowe Fisher. And you recognize her brilliance and commitment and dedication for over the 35 years uh, that she started as the co-founder of uh, NVIC and really documented what she did like no one else has done previously. And it was really incredible. Barbara is absolutely extraordinary. And this, this film did not set out to be an homage to Barbara. But that's the way it's turned out. <laughs> you know, she, the, 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 her role in this and everything that she's done has been, to some extent, misrepresented and misunderstood. As you said, many people don't know the history. And so it was essential to tell the true history of how this woman really led the charge and has continued to lead the charge for so many years. And then we came into the final scene, and it was extraordinary. There was that, there was that event in, in, on the, the mall in Washington, a big protest, and we took our actors there and filmed them there. They were part of it. That was part of their final sort of push into this, this, this uh, vaccine safety arena. And I was going to take, as a filmmaker, little clips from Bobby and Dell and other people and a little bit of Barbara. I didn't have to go near it. Barbara delivered one of the most extraordinary speeches that I've ever heard. One of the most extraordinary motivational speeches that have ever taken place in that town, in that city. And as, so as a filmmaker, she gave me everything I wanted, everything I wanted in that final speech. It was an, an extraordinary end to the film and certainly not an end to Barbara's contribution to this this work but yes bless Barbara what an extraordinary job she's done yeah and uh, speaking of her you and I will both be participating in her uh, international conference which occurs in October and uh, I believe your film is being shown uh, for those who register for the event and it's an, it's, a, it's almost free it's so inexpensive it's well under a hundred dollars but well there will be 38 other speakers you I and uh, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy will be given 45 minutes, thankfully, and to share our story. Uh, and it's going to be available online. You don't have to watch it live. You can watch it in delayed on video, but it'll be credible. So I'm just so delighted. I'm, I'm saddened that we won't be able to connect in person at that event, which is, you know, an outcome, obviously, of the, the pandemic but and the social isolation restrictions. But it is what it is, and the information will be solid. We'll make the most of it until we get to a point where we can get back to having those conferences. But for people who want to watch the film now, Joe, it's, um, it's available online at 1986theact.com, 1986theact.com. And you can stream it, you can download it, and you can order the DVD, which will be available very soon, which will be available in, in multiple languages. So people, um, no need to delay. It will be free at... Uh, Barbara's meeting sometime down the line. But for those who want to watch it now, please go to 1986, the act, and there you can see it. 
Yeah, it's great. And uh, so what type of feedback have you uh, received from the film so far? Well, from people who've watched it, uh, they loved it. Uh, we've, for those partners in relationships whose attention span is perhaps less than optimal, or, or <laughs> we've done a, a chapters version where we've broken it down now online into chapters. So you can grab uh, eight to 10 minutes of, as you go through the film, you'll know from having seen it, Joe, that it's divided into chapters, that uh, you can grab those chapter for, that chapter format. Um, so it's available in a variety of ways for people to watch. We've had wonderful, wonderful feedback. We were hoping, of course, that there would be another Tribeca moment as there was for Vax, that we would submit it somewhere and get it censored. And, and uh, that would cause worldwide outrage and, and a, a huge number of people wanted to watch the film. Of course, that didn't happen this time and, and COVID changed the entire distribution dynamic. Um, but censorship is there on the, on, on the main platforms. And so we're seeing the emergence of new platforms that are uncensored. And that's the wonderful thing about the free market. If people like uh, Facebook censor themselves effectively from this debate, this discussion, including the film, then other people will step in and say, thank you very much. I've had this idea for a new platform for 10 years, and you've just provided me with the opportunity of launching it. So that's the value of the free market. And, and we're seeing those, those new platforms emerging now. Yeah, it'll take a while for them to compete with the big giants like Google and Facebook but, and Twitter, but you know, to climb any mountain, you gotta have to climb the first steps. Oh, so yeah. I want to get back into the pandemic component and the act, which was obviously 1986, but the swine flu of 1976, 10 years previously, is one of the closest similarities is COVID-19 with respect to affecting large numbers of people. And then as a response to the infection, the rush to market of a vaccine that really wasn't properly safety tested and wasn't a mandate, but a pretty strong encouragement along with radical uh, release of governmental ads and propaganda to get the vaccine, to, to, to catalyze action to everyone get this vaccine. And that's what they did in 76. I don't know if it's the end of 76, beginning of 77, they started the vaccine. And did they have complications? There's a number of people who died. Many dozens of people were seriously injured with a Guillain-Barre neurological complications. And literally, this was six, wait, uh, four, eight years before the 1986 act that was passed. So there was no insulation from liability. And they I believe they awarded over $3 billion in damages from that vaccine, which of course would never be done today. They could have exponentially more damages, 100 times, 1,000 times more damage, and they don't have to pay a penny. So uh, I'm just wondering your thoughts on that uh, swine flu pandem pandemic and vaccine reaction and relative to the new one that's coming. Absolutely. There just um, as a by way of background, it was a it was crucial. It was critical because it was pivotal in the perception of politicians and drug companies alike. What happened was there was a single case of what they considered to be swine flu H one N one, similar to the uh, swine flu the the uh, 
1917 global pandemic that killed millions of people. That was the CDC's claim. There was one case at Fort Dix, New Jersey, based upon that one case and three other cases, all at Fort Dix, New Jersey. The CDC declared this is identical to the uh, virus that was seen and killed so many people in 1917. We need to vaccinate 95% of the US population right now. Vaccines were rushed to market. The insurance companies refused to underwrite those vaccines because they'd been rushed to market. And the pharmaceutical industry said to the, to the Ford administration, if you want people to have this vaccine, then you have to underwrite liability. Now, there is nothing that terrifies politicians like a plague because they don't understand it. They're not virologists or epidemiologists. They are entirely dependent on their experts. And as we've seen with COVID, this is the death of experts. We've had so many expert opinions which have been absolutely wrong and have led to catastrophe. And this was no different. So the Ford administration were persuaded that this was going to kill millions of Americans if they didn't rush forward with this vaccine that hadn't been tested. And the industry demanded liability protection. And this was the first blood in the water. And ironically, it was the outbreak of Legionella, a bacterial infection in, in, in Legionnaires coming home from Philadelphia from their annual convention, deaths in those that suddenly the media, and here is the, the role of the media hyped as, here it is, the flu is here. No, it wasn't. It was something completely unrelated. But that panicked the government into signing off the first liability protection for the industry. And as you say, Joe, firstly, the virus was not the same as the 1917 virus. It was a mistake. Good Lord, a mistake by the CDC? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> there were only ever four cases. There was no pandemic at all. And the vaccine was a catastrophe. Many children, many were paralyzed. Many died as a consequence of that vaccine. And the industry escaped liability altogether. It cost the taxpayer. And that gave that, that created several things. In the minds of the industry, it, they realized how powerful a motivator, a marketing tool, fear was. And if they could engender fear in politicians, they could get their way in anything they wanted. And we've seen that time and again since. And it also was, as I say, the first blood in the water for liability protection. If we can do this for flu vaccine, and the government wants children to have all these other vaccines, we can do it for those other vaccines as well, and we can avoid liability. So they, when it came to the pertussis, the whole cell pertussis vaccine, which was the big problem at the time, causing death and brain damage in children, they said, okay, if you want children to have this vaccine, it's not a big profit center for us. We're going to pull out of the market unless you give us liability protection because we've made it as safe as we can. That was the lie that was told the government. And of course, once again, the fear of the resurgence of whooping cough and the possible death of children led the government to be coerced, to be blackmailed by the industry into signing the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. The important thing about the film that it discloses through discovery documents from Mike Hugo, who was a plaintiff's lawyer in vaccine court after the act and in vaccine litigation before the act, 
in discovery documents, we realized that the whole thing was based on a fraud, on a grand lie. They hadn't made it as safe as they possibly could. They had a patent for a safer vaccine back in 1937, but it was going to cost them a fraction of a dime to make that vaccine, but it was cheaper. It saved them money if children went to the wall, if children died and were injured, and they kept supplying the wholesale pertussis vaccine. It, it, it's an extraordinary story, Joe, and people need to see it to understand the character of the industries that we are dealing with, because we are now facing the same kind of situation where everybody, sensing blood in the water, all of these, these industries, um, from AstraZeneca to GlaxoSmithKline to Merck, they uh, to Pfizer, they're all launching into these, the bid for a COVID vaccine to clean up globally when we don't need a vaccine at all. Indeed, it's, it's turning out to be a disaster. But if we are to understand where we're going with this, we need to understand where we've come from. We need to understand that this has happened time and again, and it will go on happening as long as we remain terrified of the notion of a plague delivered to us by the CDC and the industry in a smart, very simplistic marketing move. We've got to understand the issues and the film helps understand the issues. Yeah, it was, it was great to see Mike Hugo in the film. I'd never seen him before personally, I certainly never met him, but I read about him quite a bit in Judy's two books, Judy Mikovits. And uh, what an amazing individual and a pioneer in, in protecting uh, the injured children of the time based, you know, using the legal system because uh, he was really instrumental before the act was passed. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he had some reservations about this act and uh, wasn't convinced that it was the wisest thing to do. Yeah, he actually, in the end, um, it, was, it was an extraordinary situation because they came to him, Barbara's uh, group came to him with the request that they support tort reform. And of course, to the, to, the, um, to the lawyers at the time involved in prosecuting the companies, the idea of tort reform was unthinkable. But in this instance, Mike said, look, what we're dealing with here is brain damaged children. We're fighting these cases. It's taking six years, 10 years. In some mm -hmm. cases, they're getting compensation after the child. They're waiting for these children to die. They're dragging it out until these poor children die. Yeah. If we can get them a dollar today, it's worth so much more than a dollar in six years' time. So ultimately, even the legal bar were persuaded through um, the representations of Barbara and others that they should get behind tort reform, which, which they did. And he says now, of course, I regret that to my soul. Not because of the intent of the original act, which was good, but because it has become perverted and corrupted by the joint initiatives from the federal agencies who were there to protect American children and the drug companies who the federal agencies are actually protecting. Yeah, thank you for summarizing that so eloquently. And perhaps you can give some specific examples of how it's been perverted and corrupted over, over the uh, 20, wait, four, 34 years since it's been enacted to the point where now it is virtually useless. It's worthless. It, it doesn't provide any protection or benefit, virtually no protection or benefit. Certainly, Joe. What, I mean, just some examples. If the, the, 
the best way of protecting uh, yourself from uh, liability as the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, as the compensation program intended, you um, don't tell people about it. Nobody knows it exists. Their child is injured. They're dealing with a child who's regressing into autism or whatever it may be. Their lives are upside down. It's catastrophe. They are meant to know through representations of HHS that this system exists for compensation. But HHS refuses to advertise. It refuses to fulfill the mandate of Congress and notify people of the existence of this program. They keep it quiet because they know if they tell people that vaccines can actually do this harm, then people will res resist vaccination. So right out, of the, right out of the gate, they have taken the intent of Congress and thrown it back in the face of Congress. And then they have a, an ascertainment system for vaccine adverse events that picks up less than 1% of the true adverse events and say, look, we've got this monitoring system in place and we're capturing these adverse events. No, they're not. And they know they're not because they did a study with Harvard Pilgrim to automate it, to computerize it. And when they did that, they picked up a vast number of, of, of adverse reactions such that one in 50, more than one in 50, were suffering adverse reactions to vaccines that were being reported. And um, these were never being recorded in the government system that said, oh, it's only one in, one in 10,000, one in 100,000. No, it wasn't. It was vastly, and when the CDC learned of those true results, then they killed the program. They didn't institute the program in the interests of American children, they killed it dead. So there was no further ascertainment of these. And then they took the vaccine injury table, which is a table where the government said at the beginning when the act was passed, here are those injuries that we know to be caused by vaccine. They will make a table of these injuries. And if a child has a certain vaccine, and within a certain time after that vaccine, they develop this injury, then we don't need to fight that out in court. We will simply compensate that child. The discussion will be about the level of compensation. Well, the CDC hated that. That was salt in their wounds. That was automatically acknowledging that vaccines could cause serious injury and death and children would be compensated. And so when Donna Shalala took over as head of health and human services, she gutted that table in completely at odds with the intent of Congress, she gutted the table and took out the injuries that were common so that they were not automatically compensable, so that the parents would have to prove to a very high degree of legal certainty that their children had suffered this injury as a consequence of, of the vaccine. How could they do that? How could parents pit their knowledge, such as it was, such as as it is against the might of the drug companies and the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice, they couldn't do it. And it was almost a predetermination that there was never going to be any compensation. And the one mistake they made, the one big mistake they made was in the case of Hannah Poling, where they did award a child compensation for a novel injury. They created a precedent and they had no idea how common that precedent was, that she had a mitochondrial disorder or a mitochondrial predisposition to developing a severe, serious adverse reaction to the vaccine. They had no idea how many children with autism had this same mitochondrial dysfunction, disorder. 
And so they'd written a blank check. And what they had to do then, the Department of Justice then did, in my opinion, in collusion with the special masters who are in charge of vaccine court, is they deliberately manipulated the documents, legal documents, where it states that this is an off-table injury, a precedent, one that might open Pandora's box for HHS by identifying thousands of children who were automatically entitled to compensation. What it did is to say that never happened. They changed the small print so that it then became just ordinary old vaccine brain damage, nothing special, nothing new, not a precedent. And that was deliberate. That was the most extraordinary risk on the part of senior lawyers and others in the Department of Justice to take that risk on behalf of the vaccine program and deny children compensation. There needs to be accountability, Joe. There needs to be prosecution. These people need to be held up as a disgrace to America, to their profession, to their government role in protecting the citizens of this country. It's absolutely appalling. And uh, it goes on and on. I mean, the, the, story, the film is full of the most heinous acts of fraud, deception, lies um, uh, at the highest level. And it, it really, the key to this film is that it leads to accountability. This cannot simply be allowed to be brushed under the carpet and therefore it has to be made as public as possible and it has to have an influence upon the upcoming election. It has to influence politicians in the way that they now have to act on behalf of the interests of the children that they represent and not the drug companies who are paying for their campaign fees. That is absolutely essential. And that will be my message on the road to all Americans, is that you must vote in the next election for your children and for your grandchildren. That means voting for the leaders who will stand up for your children in the face of pressures, financial pressures, political pressures from pharmaceutical industry lobbyists. That has got to change. In an ideal world, I couldn't agree more, but that, that we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a world that is uh, essentially surrounded but filled with narratives of the mainstream media. And the, one of the biggest narratives is that vaccines work. And if you're anti-vax, you, you should be jailed and for killing people needlessly. Uh, so that's a major risk to any politician who seeks to initiate this type of strategy. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on overcoming that challenge. Well, Joe, you know, I've been in this debate, let's call it a debate for, for 30 years now. Yeah. And I've seen a dramatic change. What I noticed is, I mean, when it was when I was a scientist and published 150 papers, they could dismiss all of it. They could ignore all of it. It never got into the public domain. But when we took Vax to Tribeca and it was censored and then went, well, why? It had an extraordinary effect. They made a huge error, and that was censorship, because that made people want to see the film they were being told they couldn't see. And a lot of people saw that, and it had an effect of unifying groups that had vaccine safety groups, vaccine safety awareness groups, health freedom groups who'd become fractionated, disparate, broken up because they'd 
undergone years and years of siege mentality, that they'd forgotten that the enemy was outside the gates and they were looking internally for why have we got no food and ammunition and why are we falling apart? Surely it must be something we're doing ourselves. So that unified people. And then, and it also did another thing. It made the, um, the lobbyists, the public health people, the, uh, the doctor, they realized that um, they'd made a huge mistake. And film was therefore the key, that they could not control, they couldn't exert the same authority over film, the same kind of censorship as they could over scientific debate, for example. And so that's what convinced me of the power of film and the need to pursue this. And I think that now there are some extraordinary films coming out. And there are so many people now who are aware of this, not least of which because of, because of COVID. So many people that are aware of the vaccine mandates that we see in polls around the country, the majority of people now moving towards the majority saying, we are not going to have a vaccine forced upon us. We will not take this vaccine. You have not convinced us that it's safe. And these are not just rabid anti-vaxxers as they would seek to betray us. These are people who've studied, who've understood, who these are people who have spent years trying to understand what is actually going on. I've never met a more sophisticated group of advocates and activists in terms of their knowledge. Take Barbara, for example. Barbara knows more than any public health official, any doctor, any doctor about the safety profiles of vaccine. So they're losing. I think this is the key message. They're losing. And their losing manifests as anger, resentment, more and more newspaper articles, news articles about how bad we are, but at their core, they're losing. And the World Health Organization had a meeting not long ago to discuss this very, why are we losing? Why are we so bad in social media at convincing people? Why are they so good? The other side, they must be, they must be funded by their own George Soros, something like this, absolute nonsense. The difference is very simply that we are telling the truth and they are not. And they've lost the hearts and minds of the public, and they will never get that back, never. And so they need to come to the table and sit down and discuss this rationally, or they will lose for all time. And when they do, they will only have themselves to blame. Well, thank you for expanding on that and gives us some hope. Uh, I, I wanted to respond, maybe end with the fact that the only disappointment I have with your film was one that really wasn't a result of your actions or inactions or any failures, but the timing in that you finished the production just as the crazy pandemic was going full force. So there is a mention of that at the very end of the film, but by guess an ideal world, you would have had six more months to integrate the COVID-19 response into this. And I am wondering if you could maybe add an addendum here as the writer producer of the the film of how you would change it if it had been produced six months later. You're absolutely right. I would have, it would have been part of a, an ongoing narrative of public deception of here we go again. We've done this with the 1976 swine flu debacle. We did the 2007, 2008 swine flu 
debacle that never was that Cheryl Atkinson unearthed. We've done it with Ebola. We've done it with Zika. We've done it now with COVID. We've threatened the public time and time again with this, and they've seen through us. And I think we would have, I mean, the value, the latest, um, the latest initiative on behalf of COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines is interesting. It's thrown up a few new things because never before in the history of the world has there been such attention on safety trials, for example. In the past, a company like AstraZeneca could have got away by virtue of their study design with suddenly the emergence of a case of Guillain-Barre syndrome or transverse myelitis in one of the study patients. Then having to stop the trial as a consequence, having invested perhaps billions of dollars in such a product. Now the eyes of the world are upon them and they cannot get away with it. Um, we've seen experts get up and get it wrong. We've seen the annihilation of the global economy for no reason at all. And when we look at countries like Sweden, we've seen what we should have done. We've seen the same Gompert's mortality curves for Sweden, the same as every other country. Nothing that we did, social distancing, mask, anything, made any difference to the mortality trajectory, which is the best measure of the severity of a disease, um, in any country. And Sweden stands out as an example of a country now that has a lower mortality from COVID than the United States, having taken none of these precautions and has achieved a level of natural herd immunity in the population that has protected it, which we in America do not have as a consequence of the policies, the mistaken policies that have been adopted. It's not that there weren't people out there saying, don't do this. Dr. Fauci, don't do this. This is not the right approach. The original Imperial College data were way in excess of what the mortality should have been. It is that they, we are the experts. We'll tell you what to do. It doesn't matter if it applies to us or not. We won't follow our own expert advice, but you must because you're the proletariat and you don't understand these things. Yes, people do. People really do understand. And I'm astonished by the quality of people's understanding, the depth of people's understanding of these issues. Um, so it would have made, and it will make, for somebody or us or many of us, uh, taking a look at it from different angles, a great new movie, an extraordinary new movie about <laughs> the lessons of COVID. It'll be very interesting to see future documentaries about this. Just, you know, this is the new, uh, I guess, fear initiator introduced into the population 20 years, nearly 20 years after 9-11. Uh, this is the new one. This is the silent, invisible terrorist that's leashed into the population. And we know how many documentaries were produced after that. And there's going to be, I can't imagine there wouldn't be as many after this one. But I, I want to discuss some of the side effects and what you think will be the worst case scenarios. I have my own impressions, but I'd be curious as to what yours are. Because just last week, we had AstraZeneca suspend their trial because of an incidence of transverse myelitis, which is eerily reminiscent of the swine flu, uh, which, and it's surprising because it's a completely different model of a vaccine. But it's odd that they got the same darn side effect. So uh, they, of course, resumed it after examining it more carefully and no justification as to why they resumed it, but they nevertheless, they did. So the, the, the vaccines will be here. And I'm wondering, 
you know, and you are so right in suggesting that the polls show, and, they, they, and you're right, maybe less than 10%, I don't know, 5% of the population would consider themselves anti-vax or pro-vaccine safety. The, and there's 50% of the population who refuses to get the vaccine. That's just an incredible testimony to the, the fact that they're not going to get away with this. But assuming there are, there, they, they, they create, introduce so much fear to the population that there's a, a, a large percentage of the population, maybe a quarter or more, who are going to rush to get this vaccine. So I'm wondering what your predictions are as to what are the worst case scenarios? Well, I think we already saw with the, um, the Moderna vaccine, we saw a very high rate of adverse reactions, moderate to severe adverse reactions with the higher doses in particular of the vaccine, which are, of course, the doses that are going to need to be given to elderly people who have this immune senescence, who need a bigger dose to produce an effect. So we're going to see serious adverse events in the elderly, who are the particular population that they're seeking to protect. Yeah, I think the worst case scenario... But it's interesting that the target population is the elderly suggest, but that wasn't the population they tested. Yeah, that's right. Yes, they started in the healthy. So we're seeing these serious adverse events in healthy, healthy individuals. That's very concerning. Um, the other thing about the, 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 uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine is transverse myelitis is a table injury. It is a recognized compensable table injury for vaccine. So there it is. There's no denying. You can't deny that this healthy person in the middle of this trial suddenly develops this serious neurological adverse event and it's not the vaccine that did it. You can't do that. That should in effect be the death of that vaccine right there because you can extrapolate from that one case to a global population receiving that vaccine and see millions of people paralyzed and killed, rather like, as you say, with the swine flu uh, 1976 vaccine. And so um, if I were in that trial, I would be saying right now, thank you very much. I've uh, changed my mind and uh, won't be having it after all. Um, I d I, now, when I, I heard, and I'm interested to hear you say this, Joe, I heard that it had restarted in, um, in England, but not yet in the United States, that that was still up in the air. You may know more than yeah, I do. I, I just read it this morning, so I think they did, but it may, that it may have been a superficial story and weren't specific as to the location that it was started, but they did resume it somewhere for sure. If they certainly resumed it in England, but if I tell you, if I was part of that trial, I'd be back, backing away from it just as quickly as possible. So I have grave misgivings about these vaccines, Not, and we're looking at short-term complications you and I know that autoimmune diseases, other autoimmune diseases, do not start perhaps for months, years after the exposure, but you are primed to develop that autoimmune disease by virtue of vaccine exposure. And so we're going to see a, an accumulation of adverse events in healthy young people as we move forward. Now, as you say, some people will still rush to get that vaccine oh, because gosh. such is the level of their fear engendered by the media and the government that they will, they will go for it. And all I can do, Joe, is wish them luck. But in, in the sort of harshest of sort of neo-Darwinian terms, I'm afraid that is the way of the world. And uh, anyway, I am a great believer in natural immunity. I'm come to believe that we are here on this earth and we are robust. Our immune systems are, at least were until 
where they were assaulted by vaccines robust enough to deal with these kind of insults. And there are many other ways of protecting a population that do not involve going anywhere near a vaccine. Yes, indeed. We certainly highlight many of those strategies on our site for people who want more details. And there's, we're not the only site that does this, but I couldn't agree more. It's enhancing your body's natural immune response is the solution for this. And uh, to recognize that this fear is being engineered, the, the real risk there is relatively minor to what's, what is being portrayed. It appears that Fauci recognizes it as well, Joe. There he is yeah. admitting that he's on vitamin D and C. I mean, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, that was his the interview with Jennifer, Jennifer Garner, yeah. So, and I think they changed the, the, the headlines on that. Initially, in response to the interview with Garner, he was saying it was response to the COVID-19, but then they just generalized it to, to viral respiratory infections, upper respiratory infections. So they don't, the media doesn't want to give an inch, that's for sure. But, uh, all right, so that uh, 1986, the doc, the, the story, is that, that's the title? 1986, the act. The Act. I'm sorry, The Act. Uh, so 1986, The Act, you can get it at the 1986theact.com. Uh, if you want to stream it or buy the DVD, it'll be available there. Uh, if you want to see it as part of the our presentations at the 5th International NVIC Conference, that will be in October. You can see it there too, but obviously it's more of a limited time frame and it's going to be a while out. So great documentary. Congratulations on all your hard efforts and work and bringing the truth out so people can understand and bring more uh, knowledge and awareness and information so they can really make an objective, rational decision as to what is the best strategy for them and their family to, to choose. Joe, it's been a pleasure being on. Thank you so much. Uh, you do a wonderful job. And um, thank you to all those on my team and others who've helped with this film. And in particular, thank you to Barbara Lofisher. Yeah, we definitely owe a debt of gratitude to her, so no question. All right, thanks, Andy. Keep up the good work. We'll see you at some point. <laughs> see you soon. Bye, Joe.